0: Welcome to Macintosh and Mud. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Stalag 17.
1: After two Americans are killed while escaping from a German POW camp in World War II, the barracks black marketeer, J.J. Sefton, is suspected of being an informer. Whoa. This movie still holds up.
0: It's pretty good.
1: I forgot how much I really enjoyed this movie and how somehow this movie takes a really black comedy and about midway through turns it into an interesting whodunit <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're captivated the whole time what
0: About captivated it moved a little
1: slow well it's a 1950s movie like
0: you know, you know it, it it still moved just a little bit slow i had really no idea what to expect from this film so I, I what was fun was like i'm watching i was like oh you know this kind of reminds there's like there's these bits where i'm like oh this reminds me of mash like just some of those some of the other war movies we've watched a little bit where it, there's like a lot of the camaraderie happening between them, mm-hmm. which is fun like i also got a few little like stripes vibes oh yeah which we didn't watch for this podcast but we watched a long time ago so yeah like i i enjoyed it i enjoyed the
1: film it's it is very interesting that this comes before almost all of the big ensemble most famous war pictures mm-hmm. that aren't dramatic reenactments if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. You know there's there's stuff like The Longest Day which is very specifically meant to be like we're going to show you D-Day from every possible angle. Yeah. And so it's much more of a historical drama but then you also have And I think it comes from this movie, the let's do a take on a story about a group of guys Mm -hmm. through the lens of the war, Sure. which is where you get MASH, which, you know, everybody talks about MASH as an allegory for Vietnam, despite the fact that it's set in Korea. Sure. But you also get a ton of war sitcoms that come out after this. We'll talk about that in the trivia. But I mean, like, this came before all of those. Hmm. And it came before some of the most famous examples, like even The Great Escape, which is probably considered like the greatest escape war movie ever made. It's seven years after this.
0: Hmm. I've never seen that one.
1: And this is only five to six years after the war. Mm. Now, I have to say, it doesn't hurt that this is an adaptation. Okay. And it doesn't hurt that that adaptation was also pretty successful.
2: Okay, yeah,
1: sure. I think Billy had a lot to work with here, but like this is. You have those movies that are like, well, this is a linchpin in culture. And then you have movies like this where it's, this is the secret, less known movie that actually spurned all these bigger things later on. Sure. And it's just not as talked about unless you're going to go watch Billy Wilder stuff.
2: <laughs>
1: That's the only reason that a lot of people would pick this one up because it's not. As big a deal and as widely known, even in Wilder's works.
0: Or if you, you happen to be a big war buff. Yeah.
1: And even then, it's not talked about in such high esteem, mostly right. because there's so many war movies.
0: Well, the other thing about this film is that it's not about battle in any way, shape, or form. No. I mean, it, there you know, there's the ongoing war, and so that's looming over everything, but that's not what the film is about. At all. So if you're a big war buff, this may not be at the top of your, your list.
1: Yeah, it's all about people. hmm And what people do in such a high-pressure situation. How do they cope? How do they deal with this crap?
0: So this is the perfect type of war movie for Diana.
1: A little bit. Yeah, kind of. War movies for Diana need to be about the people. I want to see a person in a particular
0: circumstance. And I would like to follow them or that group or, you know, like we talked about with Dunkirk, like, okay, here's this one particular battle and I'm going to show it to you from three different attack points, if you will. And that was very interesting. 1917. We're going to show one guy and we're never going to stop. It's going to be this one guy's journey to accomplish this one thing. And not oh, I mean, the cinematography is the fucking shit, but the story is very compelling. It's great. Those are the types of war movies that I'm, I'm on board for. Yeah. So this one, not knowing anything, it was like, oh, okay,
1: cool. I'm, I'm here <laughs> for this. I can do it. Well, the budget for this film was $1,660,000. Oh, okay. That equates to about $18,500,000 in today's money. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of set pieces and a lot of actors.
0: Sure. This is a
1: big ensemble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It made $10 million in box office. That's about $111 million. It did very, very well. Yeah. Which seems surprising for a movie like this, slightly.
0: Well, I, I, I don't know, because I'm sure still e- it coming out so close to the war, I could see a lot of people being interested.
1: Well, it's also coming out very close to the tail end of the Korean War.
0: Okay, yeah. It's
1: like... That that is one we don't ever talk about, but you know, it wasn't very long after World War II that we went right back to war, mm-hmm. and that war is never talked about much to the frustration, rightfully so, of the veterans who fought in it. But sure. like, we we got out of World War II, and then America just decided to kind of pop back into a Cold War, and then the Korean War, which was a proxy. So, yeah yeah it 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 never really ended for us, and I think you know talking about the writing of this, that's a huge part of it is that this is a movie about the dudes, the grunts on the ground who have to bite mm-hmm. It's not about the officers, it's not about you know the the generals in charge and and the supposed great guys who know how to fight these battles. It's the dudes who are marched out there to have to deal with all the shit, yeah. And it was written, the play was written, by two actual prisoners of war. Hmm. So Donald Bevan and Edmund Trzesinski. this is really their biggest credit claim to fame. I, I think they may have a handful of other things, but they wrote this play. And it was a fairly decent success. Okay. They were both prisoners of war at Stalag 17b in Austria during World War II. Bevan himself was a B-17 tail gunner who was shot down over Germany in 1943, and he was very likely the inspiration for a character in 1949's 12 O'Clock High, which is a one of the most famous World War II fighter plane movies ever hmm.
2: made.
1: The play ran for 472 performances starting in May 1951, mm-hmm. and based on that success and the story and all of that, of course, Hollywood wanted to take it to the screen. Yeah. So, we get our two writers. First, we've got Billy. Of course we have Billy, because that's what the whole thing is about. But his collaborator for this movie is a gentleman named Edwin Blum. Before this, Blum had written The New Adventures of Tarzan in 1935 and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1939. Uh, he wrote The Canterville Ghost, and then so much nothing up until he wrote the story that 1986's film Gung Ho was based on. Interesting. He doesn't have that many credits. I would be willing to bet that Bloom is here for our adventure and Billy is here for the snappy witty dialogue.
0: <laughs> I think that's fair.
1: What do we think of the writing of this movie?
0: I think it's very good. I think it you've got a reasonable amount of like war drama, of like everyday war business uh, or or p- prisoner of war business. And then you have a reasonable amount of this mystery. That is who's the informant, who's the snitch, as well as what are these guys doing with their time? Because they're doing a lot of nothing. Yeah. So what what is the nothing? And it's it's that's kind of fun. There is an element of like boys at camp, (laughs) Um, which I know is not the reality of the situation. But that is the this is the way we're trying to make it through, which
1: is good to see. Well, and that that wasn't completely untrue. Mm-hmm. A note that comes in later is that European prisoner of war camps were generally, they they strayed a lot closer to the Geneva Convention. The real horror stories that you get out of World War II were the, the Japanese prison camps mm-hmm. for prisoners of war because they dealt with just horrendous stuff. And that's not to shy away from, you know, also the fact that the Germans are building concentration camps and mm. there's all sorts of terrible things going on but from a historical perspective the prisoner of war camps they weren't great you didn't want to be there but a lot of people survived yeah and so there was a, an element of you're just having to get through it
0: sure yeah like this is this is where i'm at there's nothing i can do about it right now my life isn't truly in danger so like whatever i gotta do to get along
1: Well, and the the movie does this great job of, we're going to draw up these different characters of, some guys are going to cope with drinking and partying and just being wild. Sure. Some guys are going to cope by, we have to do what Americans should be doing, which is escaping. Sure. And that's absolutely a thing. There were... There were many soldiers, especially those who were like more petty officers, like Mm -hmm. the guys who were in charge of the barracks, Mm -hmm. who were like, no, 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 if we're not trying to get out of here, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing as soldiers. Fair. And then you have guys like Sefton, who are just like, I just want to live through this fucking shit and be as comfortable as possible while I'm here. Yep. And all of those seem to be pretty valid thoughts when you're literally stuck in a camp in the middle of western europe. Sure. I mean they they go they can go a little broad from time to time in how they're doing it because this is definitely based on a stage play. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the characters still seem really reasonable. Yeah. Nobody seems like, well this wouldn't be a, an actual person in a prison camp. No, they they might not make this Really ridiculous level of joke and comedy out of it, but, yeah, that person would exist, sure, I think that's sort of the fun part. It's I like the fact that they draw the broadness just because they want to play up the comedy, sure. I think probably the one the one lacking part is that they play the comedy a little too much from time to time, which is where I think that length part comes in, yeah. They play a lot of bits for way too long,
0: yeah, like the the painting of the lined bit. <laughs> Like, it's funny.
1: It's a very funny bit and just keeps going.
0: Yeah, it's like, to what end? Like, it it just doesn't do anything for those characters or the characters watching it. Like, it doesn't do anything. So it's just like, eh, okay, we spent five full minutes on this. No, thank you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, them doing it is important because then Sefton goes over there later with no problem.
0: Sure. No, no, I totally get. Yeah. I totally get the purpose. But why did it have to go on so long? No.
1: Yeah. That, that's really all it is for me, that sometimes you've beaten the joke into the ground and we don't need it to be there. But especially once we get into the later stages of the movie, and not only do we have a mystery, mm-hmm. but then Sefton knows the last third of the movie is, how is he going to prove it to these guys? Well, yeah. Because everybody thinks he's the heel.
0: Well, I really liked like that line where he says, like, there's only two people who know I didn't do it. Me and the guy who did do it. You
2: listening, Septon? Yeah, I still got one good ear. Now you listen to me. There are two guys in this barracks that know I didn't do it me and the guy that did do it. And it could be any one of you. You, Hoffy, or Duke, or Price, or the animal, or Blondie, or even Joey. And he better watch out, the guy that left me holding the stick. Because if they're going to be any throats cut in this barracks.
0: Uh huh. And I'm just like, I mean, that's kind of, it's one of those like no duh statements that, but is also like this light bulb moment. I'm like, of course, of course, the person who actually did it knows it's great. It's, and the other guy's reaction to that is also like,
1: oh, okay. Yeah. And, and there's a way in which you can think about like, oh, this would play so well on stage, right? Oh, sure. I do think there there's an element that this would be way more interesting to watch on stage as opposed to on film. But I have to give credit where credit's due, that Billy and Edwin Bloom did a really good job mm-hmm. of translating it and making it work as best as they could.
0: I think it works pretty well on screen. I think that moment would have been a really good act break. Yeah. Because that's where the film needs to switch. And I feel like that's where we needed to really stop the hijinks and yeah, well, really focus on the drama of, you know, this guy who's got to leave, uh, Sefton clearing his name, and then also the drama of the audience seeing the real informant doing what it is he does.
1: Yeah. Oh. It, it It's not without its flaws, but... Mm-hmm. For a movie about prisoners of war, it's mm-hmm. pretty damn entertaining. Oh, yes, which that in and of itself is pretty impressive to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, at no point did I feel like I'm not enjoying this. I'm like, okay, can we move along because I'm ready for the next part? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. all. Yeah, Wilder and Bloom had to be very creative in how they used visual cues to accomplish things that were very verbal or stage driven in the original play.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In the play. We figure out who the informer is through a conversation that's overheard, Mm. which is a very staged thing. Sure. So instead, they came up with the loop in the light cord. I love that. Which Billy's a master of. I'm just going to give you one shot and it's going to tell you everything you need to know.
0: Well, what I love is that when we first see it, we're like, oh, and then we focus on the chess piece. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's all about the chess piece. And then later we realize, oh, no, it's the lamp is the signal that there's something in the chess piece. And so then they just leave it and nobody else notices it. So it's a wonderful visual payoff because then later when it happens again and the actual informant sees it, you can see how is he going to do this? How how is this going to work?
1: And by far the coolest fucking shot in the whole movie. Is the single shot from the back of the barracks when they're having the Christmas party? Uh-huh. And Dunbar stands in the back, hiding away from everybody partying, and then comes to the dance. And the camera just stays locked on them mm-hmm. the whole time. And you're just like, oh shit, Billy. Yeah, no, that's he- when it all comes together.
0: Well, that not only is it a great shot, but it's a wonderful choreography. And that is like stage choreography. In that, like, you've got to do all of this stuff and make it pay off that nobody else is going to notice this. It works great. And then later, when you realize once Sefton sees it happen in the other way, you're like, all right, I got you, man.
1: Just that moment. And then the final part is it cuts away to see Sefton in the shadows. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yes. Yeah.
0: Which is great. It's great. It's very. um. Hitchcockian.
1: Yes. And I will say, a lot of that is due to Billy's directing. His directing really shines through in this movie more than anything. But that was definitely put on page.
0: It's a little bit of that noir flair.
1: Just enough. Just Just the right touch of it. Yeah, just a little dash. Well, for what up until this point has been a wacky comedy. Yes. (laughs) Like, up until halfway in the movie, we're just like, all right, well, it's just kind of a wacky comedy with uh, some very dark undertones. Yes. And then all of a sudden, the stakes get raised. Mm -hmm. Just little by, by little bit. Also in the play, Duke and Animal are one single character. They're not separate. In this, he split them apart because he wanted the distinction of one guy being super comedic and one guy being the angry, you know, accuser. That's fair. I think that makes sense, especially for the time he was working in
0: sure and And also, on stage, you you don't always have that much space. And on film, he needed to fill out those barracks
1: he needed to fill out the barracks. If we remade this, I would actually love this character to be one character
2: mm-hmm.
1: to have the dichotomy of the really silly guy who then also is absolutely ready to pounce when he sees a traitor. Sure. I would like that to be a single character. But Wilder's like, I'm not taking any audience member for granted here somebody wouldn't be able to put two and two together. And I don't blame him for that. Also helps that he doesn't have to, he can find an actor who can do each of those things instead of somebody who can do both. Yeah. Which would probably cost a lot more money. Mm, likely. Because he's not stupid. All right, let's talk about what I think is probably the best part of this, and that is Billy's directing. What do we think of his directing in this movie?
0: Oh, it's perfect. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything direction-wise. I think um, he really does make a uh, n- not perfect script sing. Um, it's not crap by any means. It's a great no. story. They're just edits I would have made, but the direction is fabulous.
1: It's a running theme we have. Billy's scripts were like, they're pretty dang good. There's eh, some things we quibble. And then his directing is like, oh my God, dude. <laughs> you did it. You, you did it. You good. nail it every time. Just those shots. And then like the fact of, we start off with this whole group of dudes who are just talking shit constantly even in the middle of an escape attempt
2: mm-hmm. i bet they make it to Friedrichshafen. i bet they make it all the way to switzerland and i bet they don't get out of the forest now what kind of crack is that
1: no crack two packs of cigarettes so they don't get out of the forest that's enough Sefton. crawl back in your sack
2: he'd make book on his own mother getting hit by
1: a truck anybody call come on Sefton. butt out wait a minute Hoffy. I want to back those kids. I'll cover ten of them. I'll take five, eight.
2: Put me down for ten. I'll no cover miles. three. I'll okay. take one. I'll cover the whole pot. Anything you say, Cookie. More cigarettes.
1: And then, not ten minutes in, we are confronted with Nazis showing off dead prisoners, mm-hmm. and we're like, "Oof, <laughs> this is tough shit, man." Mm-hmm. He does. He he does this amazing thing through the way he arranges the scenes and the way he shoots them to say yes this is very silly there's a lot of silliness going on but the stakes are deadly yeah like no matter how much these guys how much you fall in love with these guys how silly they are at no point should you ever feel like anybody's safe mm-hmm. because these are bad guys <laughs> and then you know like you said he he brings the touches of his noir experience. So that he can play that mystery part of it better,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then you know he gets a little he gets a little war movie escape right at the end. Yeah, but in a beautifully little twisty m- mystery way, mm-hmm. throwing out the the stool pigeon to draw the attention so that they can escape. That's such a little con movie heist movie thing to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a very it's a very Billy Wilder moment. It's it's perfection again. He, just all those shots that he gets that you're like, my god, dude. All right, well, Billy intentionally shot the film in sequential order so that mm-hmm. he could get natural reactions from all of the actors to the various plot twists. Mm. Like, obviously, people probably knew, but also, Billy was notorious for filming without a completed script, so it's mm. entirely possible. Yeah. People didn't know what was going to happen next. Filming took place at a studio owned ranch in Aguara Hills, California, but Billy showed up to the ranch, wore his best shoes and in front of all of the cast and crew walked directly through the mud. Mm. He even refused to use the wooden planks that the commandant walks on for the film because he felt he couldn't ask anybody else to trudge through that mud that they had wet down unless they saw him do the exact same.
0: I like it.
1: It's a smart move. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with an ensemble of guys who are going to have to all come together in camaraderie. Mm -hmm. You gotta. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta do, do that shit. Wilder made it explicitly clear on the first day of shooting that there will be no deviation from the script. Everybody had to do the lines exactly as written. Mm-hmm. This is not uncommon for him. He's like, I wrote the script. We made it. We perfected it. Deliver it. Mm-hmm. Specifically, he had to address this to two actors, William Holden and Otto Preminger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Holden didn't like that Sefton wasn't nicer or at least a bit more charming. He didn't want him to be so bitter and selfish. Despite that insistence, Wilder refused and Holden tried to turn down the role, but the studio forced him back into it. Oh, wow. He didn't want to get pigeonholed as being just this utter bitter cynical guy, which, dude, that's the whole point.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Preminger, who we will get into, why he might have been this way but he loved to be a ham and he had to be reminded to keep himself in line
2: mm-hmm.
1: again we'll talk about that when we get to who he is wilder of course did come up with one tiny more humanizing moment for sefton that wasn't on the page mm-hmm. as he slips down the tunnel he of course says bitterly just one more word
2: if i ever run into any you bums on a street corner just let's pretend we never met before
1: But Wilder thought it was too abrupt an ending, so he decided to tell Holden to pop back up one more time and give a salute before he went down the tunnel, which is adorable and precious and also still in keeping with Sefton. Sure. However, for a couple of reasons, this would be the beginning of the end for Billy at Paramount.
2: Hmm.
1: Number one, this was a huge hit, so he expected a pretty big payout in some of the profit. Okay. I mean, it made 10 times its money. It did really well. Yeah. However, the studio told him that since his prior film, Ace in the Hole, had lost money, the difference would be subtracted from his profits on this film.
0: Oh, is like, that allowed?
1: I don't know, but don't fuck with Billy's bag.
0: Yeah, I mean, that sounds like, like asking for a lawsuit.
1: It's, it's not a good idea. Let's put it that no. way. There is one other thing that may have left a really bitter taste in his mouth. In order to improve the movie's profits in West Germany, the studio requested that the camp guards be changed from Germans to Poles.
2: Mm.
1: Billy Wilder was Polish. Mm. His mother and stepfather died in the concentration camps. He furiously refused the executives on this and demanded an apology. He never got one.
2: Good
1: for him. Oh, God. Hollywood's always been bad, guys. I mean... There are horror stories of Hollywood trying to appease Hitler with the movies they were putting out until, even until America was fully in the war, like after 1939. So like, studios were bad.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Well, that leads us to our cast. Mm-hmm. And oh boy, do we have a fun cast. And we start with the man. He's back for his second time. William Holden playing Sergeant J.J. J. Sefton. Mm-hmm. We talked about him directly for the last film. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic in Sunset Boulevard. What do we think of him in this movie?
0: I feel like I can tell he's struggling.
1: Really? I think he's perfect.
0: I Until his character has the motivation to prove himself to not be the guy, I struggle with him a little bit. Oh, okay. Not that he's doing a bad job, but it's just like he feels really inconsistent.
2: Uh
1: I don't think so. I think I think he's playing a lack of motivation until he gets the uh, until they steal his stuff, and that's mm-hmm. when he starts to like get the look in his eye of "oh shit."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like I think the first third of the movie, it's just like whatever y'all want to do. I've got my own thing going, and I don't care.
0: Uh, maybe I just it didn't feel that way to me.
1: Hmm. Interesting. That's weird. I'd- like I think this is a movie that he was born to fucking play. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like it's it, it the the mix of smug charm and also slightly jaded mm-hmm. is like perfect for William fucking Holden. <laughs> but Maybe. interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I read it the whole time. Well, anyway, Wilder asked him to see the play that the everything was based on, and Holden walked out after the first act. Oh, still the studio convinced him to read the screenplay. He did. He decided to go ahead and take it. Now, despite his misgivings, because you may be right in the sense of you may be reading his discomfort with what he's doing here. He Mm -hmm. thinks it's not right for him. Sure. He did really dig into the role. He got a crew cut himself. Okay. He grew out his stubble. He undercut what was, at that point, he had very much leading man looks. Mm -hmm. And he really tried to fully take on the look of a GI in a POW camp. Mm Mm-hmm. Generally, he was known to be pretty friendly on set. I mean, he was a drinker, but he was known to be like just a guy you could goof off with and have fun. He actually withdrew very quickly on set, and he complained about the noise and pranks from most of his castmates, who, as we'll talk about, a lot of these guys were in Broadway.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Some of the lesser-known guys were reprising their roles, so he felt a little alienated.
2: Hmm, that's... It wasn't
1: until later in the shoot when he got more confident in the role and he had more fun with it and, and also got into the pranks and the other stuff. And that is interesting because if it was filmed in sequence, it's not until later when he's really feeling yeah. comfortable.
0: That does make sense. But that's what I noticed from him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if that's what you see, that, that's totally interesting. To me, it always just read as he is completely aloof and a secondary character to everything that's going on until they make it about him.
0: I mean, that's totally fair, but yeah, I just, hmm, interesting.
1: One of those few cases where we can actually pinpoint that because, again, it was all going in order.
0: (laughs) Which, yeah, that's crazy.
1: Now, talking about Holden, one day during an afternoon break, he, quote, entertained an actress in his dressing room. That day, while shooting one of the final scenes in the water tower, he saw his wife standing on set looking stricken. Mm. He walked down terrified that he'd been caught. However, she had accidentally wrecked their car, and she was just mortified, and he was completely relieved.
2: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he's, okay. He's
1: William Holden, everybody. All right, who could have been better? The original choice for this role was one Charlton Heston.
2: Hmm. No.
1: No, he was dropped when they changed Sefton to be an anti-hero when -hmm. the the writing process went that way. Eston was like, no, I won't do that. And we're all better off for it. Oh, yeah. Then next in line was the star of Billy's previous film, Ace in the Hole, one Kirk Douglas.
0: Oh, okay, I could see that.
1: He probably could have done it. It would be interesting. It wouldn't be as smug Mm -hmm. because Kirk isn't as smug. He's more intense. Mm -hmm. but he was a good enough actor to pull something like this off.
2: Hmm.
1: He just wound up declining it, and he claimed it was the biggest mistake of his career.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Which I don't feel bad about because he's a terrible person. Fair. Fair. All right. Next up, we get Don Taylor as Lieutenant James Dunbar. Hmm. He is the officer who comes in, is in the water tower. He's up here because he was one of the bigger stars. Even though he's not in the movie that long. Uh, before this, he actually got his start as a soldier and sailor hmm. in a lot of movies, despite being a draftee in the army. He wound up serving in World War II, became a bit of a known quantity, and then showed up in like a ton of Navy movies for some weird reason. Mm-hmm. But he was in Winged Victory, The Naked City, Father of the Bride in 1950, Father's Little Dividend, Flying Leathernecks, Submarine Command, and Destination Gobi. After this, he was in The Men Forest, The Bold and the Brave, and then he went into directing. Um, okay. He did a ton of TV movies. He directed Escape from the Planet of the Apes, the really weird comedic third one. Uh, he directed Damien, Omen 2, and The Final Countdown. Hmm. Just a wild, interesting career.
0: That is a little odd.
1: We name him up here in the credits. What do we think of him in this movie? He's barely
0: in it. I mean, he's a good asshole.
1: The one real thing of note for this guy is that... He convincingly plays an officer who, mm-hmm. despite being an amiable guy, definitely has a little bit of looking down his nose at everybody. Yeah. And Sefton calls him on it almost immediately. <laughs> but Dunbar gets the upper hand of being like, I'm not giving shit up. I'm not telling yeah. you anything. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of every all of the the Germans in the camp who want to figure this out and get the win. He's like. I don't care what you do to me. I don't care how much... I just want to go to sleep, first of all. (laughs) Please just let me go the fuck to bed. Yeah. But he doesn't give anything up. And he, out of everybody, he's probably the purest hero in the movie. He's also just not that big a deal, but whatever. All right, then we go to Otto Preminger as Oberst von Scherbach. Now, Otto Preminger is not an actor. He was a very famous German director. This is one of his few film roles. Of the movies he's directed, he he had a run on par with Billy.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But different styles of movies. Um, and also, Otto Preminger, one of the best-known directors who Saul Bass, the legendary title designer, worked with all the time. Oh, okay. So, Otto Preminger directed the movies Laura, The Man with the Golden Arm, Carmen Jones, St. Joan, Porgy and Bess, Anatomy of a Murder, and Exodus. It's like... That's just some of his most famous stuff. Mm. He's a big fucking deal. Yeah. What do we think of Otto Preminger in this movie? Uh, He's pretty good. He is very interesting because he's a little bit of a prototype of like the Hans Lande Nazi. Yeah. Of like, I am not a Nazi because I hate anyone. I'm a Nazi because it's beneficial to me rising up in the world. Sure. He doesn't care about any of this crap. Mm -hmm. He just wants to rise up the ranks. Yeah. What he brings to it is a little more a little bit more like everydayness. And I love the little twist for him of like I'm going to get this information out of you because it will get me out of this fucking hellhole. Mm-hmm. Like I am I am not supposed to be here. Yeah. I am supposed to be in a much higher place based on my rank and they have shoved me into this garbage and I don't want to deal with you. And if I can get this, if I can report this attack, I will finally get the position I deserve. Yeah. I hope you appreciate this moment, Lieutenant. You see, I'm a cavalryman. All the von Scherbass were cavalrymen. Well,
2: you know what happened to the cavalry. Just give me five minutes on that couch, will you?
1: Five minutes. The young ones, they put into the Panzer Divisions. The older ones, they put into the Quartermaster Corps. Or made them recruiting officers. Or wardens like me. Wet nurses to putrid prisoners. In Berlin, they have forgotten that Colonel von Scherbach even exists. But they will remember now. That's fun. Because then, the whole time, even when he's pulling some of these more grotesque things, you're still just like, ah, oh, but you just want this for your own power. Oh, yeah. It's It's the banality of evil it's much more sinister in a very just normal way
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which i think is important when you've got a movie like this where you're really trying to focus on this crew and the issues at play Mm -hmm. you don't want them to be like the all capital letter nazis right you don't want them to be like the baddest of bad guys you want them to also be realistic so undercutting them helps when you're also dealing with just this set of circumstances. Hmm. And that's not to say that you shouldn't portray Nazis as bad guys. They're terrible. They're all fucking terrible. But I think it's just a really smart choice from the writing. And then Preminger does a reasonably good job
0: mm-hmm.
1: of playing that.
0: Well, I think for him to just be a bad guy is not interesting to watch. So he's he's got to have a layer there. And, like, not not so much to make him a sympathetic character, to be like, what else is going on there?
1: Yeah. As a director, Preminger claimed the only time he would shout at actors is if they were late or they didn't know their lines. Since he was just an actor in this film, he told Wilder that if he forgot his lines, he would present Billy Wilder with a jar of caviar. Billy Wilder told interviewers he soon had dozens of jars of caviar.
0: <laughs> well, at least he's honest. I, I can respect that. <laughs>
1: Oh, Billy Otto Preminger. Everything I've heard was like he was a very snooty European director type, but mm-hmm. eh, you know he wasn't. He wasn't like utterly harmful to anybody. <laughs> All right, then we have the breakout role of a comedic actor, Robert Strauss, playing Sergeant Stanislaus Animal Kazawa. Mm-hmm. He was the original animal in the play. Oh, okay. Before this, film-wise, he was in a movie called Sailor Beware and a movie called Jumping Jacks. But after this, because this was a big deal, uh, he was in the movie Act of Love, The Bridges It Took a Re, The Seven-Year Itch, The Man with the Golden Arm, Attack, Little Abner in 1959, and then did a ton of television because he's got the mug for TV for sure. Hmm. What do we think of Robert Strauss in this movie?
0: Oh, he's, I mean, yeah, he's pretty good. I don't, I don't think he gets enough um, screen time to really have too much of an opinion.
1: He's got bits for days.
0: He does have bits, but it's, it's bits. That's what it is.
1: <laughs> I guess that's fair. The Betty Grable thing is actually kind of adorable and sweet. And he is the linchpin of the other guys in the barracks. Mm-hmm. It is very much because you've got all these other guys who are like accusing and stuff. But if Animal has a problem... Everybody else has a problem.
0: Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so.
1: <laughs> you disagree? You think he's just like, mm, he's just
0: there. I, I think a lot of these guys end up as being just there to a degree.
1: Hmm. I, I mean, it truly is an ensemble film. Sure. They all have to work together in order for it to, to kind of work. But um, as we'll talk about, his role in particular got some got some notoriety. That's cool. The voice, god the voice, the whole time he's doing it. Mm -hmm.
0: All you sack rats better show up
1: for services and no bull from anybody. Unquote. Uh (laughs) Just the growliest man in history. And finally, playing Sergeant Frank Price, our stool pigeon, is one Peter Graves. Uh now, I'm not gonna dig too deep because he's got a bunch of random stuff. We've talked about Peter Graves before. He was the original Jim Phelps in Mission Impossible. Oh. And also, he was Captain Clarence Over in Airplane and Airplane 2.
0: Okay.
1: He, along with Leslie Nielsen, got into that, we're going to get very serious character actors to do very silly things on screen mm-hmm. <laughs> late in their career. He's probably most well known to people now because of like the shock of white hair. And of course, this is way before that. So he is he is definitely so much younger in this movie. Yeah. He's very good.
0: I mean, he's great. You know, his just flat out fuck you essentially when Septon is trying to like suss him out it was great.
1: I absolutely love that he he plays it with such an earnestness, mm-hmm. which you would need to do to fool everybody. Sure. But as the movie goes on, he gets more and more over eager. Sure. To like really take on the security role. Yeah. I love that one twist of the moment where he's like, "What if we did this tweak to set this up for the next escape?"
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the perfect way of Sefton calling him out to be like, "Why don't you go do it? I'll go with you." And and just the way he twists that so slowly and Graves. Trying to be as earnest and involved as possible, but not give it away. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just the writing convention, and it even comes from the play of having your informant be the guy in charge of security. Sure. Which is just like, oh, what a great little twist. Mm -hmm. He could have played it a little bit more shifty or like given it away too quickly. And he really does a good job of writing that line. Mm -hmm. Like he really does. I forgot that he was the guy right up until he walks over to that chessboard. And again, I've seen this movie before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know who to think it was.
1: Yeah. And then once you find out, you're like, oh, well, of course it's him. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's still just a great twist because he does a really good job of convincing you that he's just one of these other guys.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He really does a great job. And that leads us to our puns.
0: Random
1: people of note. Harvey Lembeck playing Sergeant Harry Shapiro. He was the original Shapiro in the play. We're going to touch on the other actors who were actually part of the play.
0: Okay.
1: He would also go on to play Eric Von Zipper in the Beach Party movies with Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello.
2: Nice.
1: He's a great counterpart to Animal, though. He is. Like, I love big growly, weird, gross guy next to super clean little guy. They're adorable together.
0: Yes, they're like a weird married couple. Mm-hmm.
1: We have Robert Shawley playing Sergeant Blondie Peterson. He's reprising his role from the play. Oh. And William Pearson playing Marco the Mailman. He is reprising his role from the play. When I saw him, I was like, he had to have been a part of the play. And sure enough, he was. Mm. Just that voice he had. Oh, yeah. Addies.
0: It's a very specific choice.
1: Uh-huh. For sure. Richard Erdman playing Sergeant Huffy Hoffman. He's a longtime actor and voice actor, but now is probably most recognizable as Leonard, the old guy on Community.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: He is like the guy in charge of the barracks. Love it. Fun. Uh, Neville Brand playing Duke. He played Al Capone in The Untouchables, killed Elvis in Elvis's first film, Love Me Tender, and was a very decorated vet in the European theater who studied theater on the GI Bill. Hmm, okay. Sig Ruman playing Sergeant Johann Sebastian Schultz. He was a German actor who appeared in A Night at the Opera, Nonochka, and the original To Be or Not to Be. Hmm. Gil Stratton, playing Sergeant Clarence Harvey Cookie Cook. He was a juvenile role actor who transitioned into announcing and occasionally playing himself as a Broadway star. Uh, he became an announcer for the L.A. Rams and the Santa Anita Hollywood Parks and Del Mar Horse Tracks. Hmm. Edmund Traczynski, playing Triz Traczynski. He is one of our playwriters. He is the soldier who continually says, I believe it.
2: I believe it. I believe it. You believe what? My wife. She says, darling, you won't believe it. But I found the most adorable baby on our doorstep, and I've decided to keep it for our very own. Now, you won't believe it, but it's got exactly my eyes and nose. Why does she keep saying I don't believe it? I believe it. I believe it. I believe
1: it. I love that that guy wrote the play. That's great. That's awesome. Ross Bagdasarian as the prisoner of war singing during the Christmas party. This is the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, anytime you watch an Alvin thing, you see Bagdasarian on there. And I was like, oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. And finally, John Mitchum as one of the prisoners of war. He was a sidekick detective alongside Dirty Harry in those series' first three movies. And he's also well known as the brother of the screen legend Robert Mitchum. Wow. So good stuff. All right, let's get to awards.
2: Awards.
1: This was nominated for three Academy Awards. It won one. Mm. And it won Best Actor for William Holden. Really? Yes. He was up against, in From Here to Eternity, Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Huge fucking movie. Yeah, I've
0: never never seen it either.
1: And way more well-known. Sure. (laughs) Marlon Brando in Julius Caesar.
0: Yeah, whatever.
1: And Richard Burton in The Robe.
0: Wow, okay. But again,
1: William Holden, who we love. Mm -hmm. But it's probably like second tier of Hollywood royalty, right? Yeah. Going up against Burt Lancaster, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, and Richard Burton. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and again, he's very good in this movie. I could easily see that the two the two, in From Here to Eternity canceled each other out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like That's very likely, and William benefited from that. He, for his part, didn't feel like he deserved this at all. His wife later stated that he always felt it was a compensation vote for his performance in Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Which I wouldn't be shocked by. I mean, I love him in this movie. He does do a much better job in Sunset Boulevard.
0: I agree with that statement.
1: Yeah. And that's not that's not saying that he's not good and interesting in this movie and has great moments, but like Sunset Boulevard is truly a like big deal performance for him. Now his acceptance speech was then at the time the shortest in Oscar's history. Hmm. We get some fun stuff here because he said Two words, thank you. Oh, wow. But he said it because the telecast was running long and he was about to be cut off. Yeah,
0: that's bullshit.
1: He actually later took out a full ad thanking everybody he intended to name in his acceptance speech. Aww. Which is very cool. Alfred Hitchcock beat him in 1967 by just saying a single word, thanks. (laughs) However, Hitchcock does not have the shortest speech.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: John Mills in 1971 played a mute character in the film Ryan's Daughter, and when he won Best Supporting Actor, he received it with a smile and a nod of his head.
2: (laughs) Aw. That's sweet.
1: Right? I was like, oh, that is interesting.
0: I like that.
1: So, uh, as we learned today, Hitchcock, not the shortest speech in Oscars history. All right, it also received nominations for Best Supporting Actor for Robert Strauss as Animal. Oh, okay. Jack Palance was also nominated for his villain role for Shane, but Frank Sinatra won for From Here to Eternity. Hmm, okay. Again, leading me to think From Here to Eternity just had two votes that got split. It
0: split the vote.
1: And Billy Wilder would lose Best Director to Fred Zinnemann, who won for From Here to Eternity. Hmm. And that leads us to trivia. Trivia. When Sefton goes to the water tank, he taps 10 times to the tempo of the Army Air Corps song, Up We Go, Into the Wild Blue Yonder.
0: Mm-hmm, I knew that.
1: That is the same song that Hoffie whistles to Dunbar as he walks out of Von Sherbach's quarters. Mm-hmm. By the way, one thing to note about all of these prisoners of war, they're all pilots. Okay, yeah. Because typically, especially in the European theater, the prisoners of war would be guys in planes that were shot down. Yeah. The news on the radio... That we hear that they're trying to listen to all refers to the Battle of the Bulge, which happened in December 1944, near the end of the war and in the timeline of the events of this film, because we see it's Christmas time. Mm-hmm. The 101st Airborne Division was surrounded and cut off from US forces in the Siege of Bastogne. We hear them reference Bastogne.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: two tank units assigned to Patton's Third Army were diverted to help them get free. And the 10th and 4th Armored Divisions made contact with the 101st Airborne on December 26th. Hmm. So it's, it's one little slice of the Battle of the Bulge, but it, it just adds to this is very specifically where we are in World War II with these guys. Which also, great writing. That's a really quick way to establish where we are for <laughs> most of the audience Yeah. without having to like hammer anybody with it. Because everybody who saw this at the time would know what they were talking about. Early on, Cookie refers to Schultz as a Schweinehund, which translates as pig dog. Pig dog. Schweinehund. Yeah, makes sense. There are two bunks with initials carved like a card hanging on a string in the barracks. Those initials are for the actor occupying that bunk. Harvey Lembeck carved HL in his as Shapiro, and Robert Shawley carved his RCS at playing Blondie. Of course, they were both in the original play. Oh, cool. The dog tags that we see used in the film are authentic. You would typically think of U.S. Army guys having the two dog tags, right? Mm -hmm. These aren't U.S. dog tags. Mm -hmm. They are German dog tags with a single tag with two slots, allowing them to be broken off. So the Germans wouldn't take one part of the dog tag if they identified a body. They would snap the dog tag in half. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So they're accurate to the prisoners of war. That's cool. The officers of the camp are wearing Wehrmacht uniforms, uniforms for the German army. However, because the Stalag camps were for allied airmen shot down, they were operated by the Luftwaffe, the German air force. Mm. The uniform design and color would have been slightly different than the Wehrmacht. What is pretty accurate and interesting to the story, though, is that most prisoner of war camps for enlisted men would be run by captains in the German military. Sherbuck is a colonel. He's the equivalent of a colonel. And so if he was running a camp for enlisted men, it would be very unusual, which makes his desire to get the hell out of there even more precious. Yeah. It's long been believed that this film was the direct inspiration for Hogan's heroes and that Sergeant Schultz is a direct inspiration, if not ripoff from this movie. The authors of the play sued the creators of Hogan's Heroes as they planned to create their own television show based off of Stalag 17. It got settled out of court, but the thought persists, and the thought doesn't just need to persist. It's probably very true. Hogan's Heroes is just a sitcom version of this fucking movie. Okay. (laughs) Especially Sergeant Schultz. I know nothing! I mean, come on. It is, like, the quickest walk away from the bumbling character we get in this film to one of the all-time sitcom characters, Sergeant Schultz. They're named Sergeant Schultz. Yeah. They're both named Schultz. And finally, in this film, Sefton argues against escape, saying it never works. However, in Bridge on the River Kwai, (laughs) William Holden's character argues that POWs should escape. In reality, this is probably accurate in both films. Most German prisoners of war would survive the war, while most Japanese prisoners of war died in captivity. Mm. And that leads us to ratings. Mm. For every film, we have a specific ratings system. For this one, it's gotta be cigarettes. Yeah. That's all we're doing in this movie is trading cigarettes, man. Yep. I'll give you a box says he doesn't make it out of here. <laughs> and we'll bet on the horses too. Yeah. The, horse. the mice the horse, horses was so good. The horse good.
0: race was hilarious. So good. Yeah.
1: The fact that Sefton just took it all very seriously. Yeah. A plus. A plus work. Mm-hmm. This is my movie. I still really love this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go four and a half again. Mm. I think it's really good. I love the performances. I love the ensemble and the way the story develops. Again, they just let the bit go on a little too long. Yeah. And because of that, it just kind of takes longer than it needs to. But I still was entertained. I love this take on a war movie. I love the idea of having a war movie that also involves comedy. And a little bit of noir mystery, mm-hmm. and just roll it up into a single, just really entertaining movie. I'm gonna go ahead and go four and a half.
0: Okay, I'm I'm gonna go with four. Makes sense because of the the it goes on a little too long, and some of the inconsistencies with William Holden, like which like we can tell why, but it's just like mm, mm, yeah, just I need a little bit more from him up front. Okay,
1: well. Let's see if we can finish off strong with the William Holden trilogy. Oh, okay. The mini trilogy within (laughs) this saga. As we talk about Billy Wilder's next film, 1954's Sabrina.
0: (gasps) Sabrina?
1: Now you haven't seen this movie.
0: No, but I have seen the 90s version a lot. I can't remember if I saw it in the theaters or not, but it's one my mom and I would talk about. We would actually quote a lot, so I'm very familiar with the story.
1: Well, if there's a remake, you know what that means.
0: Oh yeah, we got to double feature this because you haven't seen the newer one.
1: No, of course I have. Yes,
0: yeah, we got we got to watch it.
1: I haven't ever seen the original, so of oh. course I need to see the the remake too.
0: Okay, it'll it'll be an interesting compare and contrast because. The newer Sabrina was also a go-to-sleep movie for me for a period of time, too.
1: So that means Diana knows every line.
0: I I don't know every line.
1: You did at one point.
0: I probably know the beginning 20 minutes very well.
1: Ah, oh, well, interesting.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: I always love a little contrast a compare of a remake.
0: Yeah, that's always fun. So. Well, until next time.
1: Have a good movie.